0: is going on true crime fans. I'm your host, Heath.
1: And I'm your other host, Daphne.
0: And you're listening to Going West.
1: Today's case is actually something I'm reading a book on, which I'll go into a little bit more later. There's a lot of details in this case, so we're going to cover as much as we can, but this is a long case. So before we get into it, we wanted to give thanks to everyone who gave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts this week. Thank you so much to Whitney from Benton, Kentucky. Jasmine from Troy, New York, and Dee from California.
0: And a big thanks to Danny from New Haven, Kentucky, Brianna from Stewart's Draft, Virginia, and Michelle from Robinson, Texas.
1: Thank you so much to Rose from New Jersey, Ashton from Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Wow, that's a hard one. And thank you to Jackie from Flower Mound, Texas. And a big
0: thanks to Lee from Dalzell, South Carolina, Anna from Bluffton, South Carolina, and Tina from Tulsa, Oklahoma.
1: Thank you, Katie from Miko, Texas, Megan from Kittery, Maine, and Nikki from Cedar Rapids, Iowa.
0: And then we have Miranda from Towson, Maryland, Natalie from Dallas, Texas, and Xander from Buffalo, New York.
1: Big thanks to Kat from Hope, Arkansas, Alexis from Atlanta, Georgia, and Lindsay from Virginia. And then we have Wendy from Dallas,
0: Texas, Lori from Portland, Oregon, and Scott from Wentzville, Missouri.
1: Wow, we've got a lot this week. Thank you to Ashley from Kansas, Pam from Kentucky, and Jenna from Utah.
0: And last but not least, we have Siggy from Melbourne, Australia, Cheryl from New Brunswick, Canada, Robin from Melbourne, Australia, and Guru from Norway.
1: Thank you guys so much, and big thanks to our newest patrons, Amy, Caitlin, Taylor, and big shout-out to Barbara. Love you, Barbara. If you guys want to join our Patreon and get bonus episodes, head over to patreon.com slash goingwestpodcast. This week we are releasing our January bonus episode. You don't want to miss episode 10 or 1 through 9.
0: Yeah, definitely go over there and check that out. And thank you guys so much for leaving the reviews, it really makes our day, and we love giving you guys shout-outs, so if you want a shout-out in the show, make sure you head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a 5-star review, but leave your name and your location. Alright everybody, this is episode 55 of Going West, so let's get into it.
1: If you were alive in 1969, you remember the
2: serial murders. If not, you're about to hear a story that will scare you. 50 years ago, young women kept
1: disappearing in broad daylight in the college towns of Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti. College
2: students, high school students, even a middle school girl vanished.
0: University officials, both here and at the University of Michigan, say that they really can't provide
2: maximum protection for the girls. Most of the girls were sliced, throat was sliced. He was just kind of following me home, you know? I said, no, no, really, I'm okay. And he said, you mother ugly Aren't you gonna get in the car with me?
1: In a two-year time span, seven women were brutally murdered in the Ann Arbor, Ypsilanti area and people of the area were terrified that they or their loved ones would be next. This case begins in Ypsilanti in the summer of 1967. Ypsilanti, Michigan is a city just outside of Ann Arbor that around this time had a population of about 30,000 people. A 19-year-old named Mary Flesher went out for a walk to get some fresh air. She was living in an off-campus apartment just less than a mile from her school, which was the Eastern Michigan University in Ypsilanti. Mary was born on December 4, 1947 in Ypsilanti, Michigan, but she grew up nearby in the town of Willis on her parents' farm out in the country. She lived with her three sisters and three brothers, and even her aunts and uncles and their kids and her grandparents lived on the farm as well. So everybody loved this because this was like a huge family environment, so there was always a lot of fun going on, and Mary was surrounded by love. Her dad's main job was a mechanical engineer, but he also worked on the farm, and her mom raised her and her siblings. Mary went to Catholic school until high school, where she began attending public school at Lincoln High. Mary loved listening to the Beatles, and she loved sewing and painting as well.
0: On July 9, 1967, it was a hot summer day, and Mary Flesher told her roommate that she was going to go for a walk and that she would be back. At school, Mary was studying to become an accountant, while she was simultaneously working as a secretary at the school's service office. When Mary left for her walk, she was wearing a bright orange tent dress with big white polka dots. She was five foot five and had brown hair and wore glasses. This would be the girl that the town of Ypsilanti would be looking for after this day. Because after she didn't return to her apartment that day, her parents were informed and they ended up calling police and reporting her missing.
1: There was one person who stated they saw Mary the day that she went missing, and that was her neighbor. They told police later that they spotted her walking towards her apartment, so likely on the way back from her walk, and there was a blue-gray car slowly driving next to her. The driver stopped to talk to Mary and appeared to ask her a question, because the neighbor saw Mary shake her head no and continue walking, and that was all they saw. Considering she was close enough to her apartment to be seen by the neighbor, she was likely taken right after this sighting. So although this encounter sounds strange and a bit alarming, the neighbor had decided to continue on with their business and stop watching. Something I'm sure they regretted later.
0: Nearly one month later, two teenage boys came across a badly decomposing body on an old abandoned farm. Because of the state that the body was in, police had to wait for a medical examiner to identify them with dental records. And once they did, it was confirmed to be the body of 19-year-old Mary Flesher. She had been stabbed 30 times in her abdomen and chest, and her feet had been cut off. Her thumb was also missing, along with some of her other fingers on one of her hands, while the other arm had been severed at the forearm and taken away from the scene. The coroner also determined that Mary had been beaten badly before her death due to the abrasions on her chest and her abdomen. Although there is no proof, police believe that she was likely raped. After studying the state of the decomposition and exposure as well as the abandoned farm, they were able to establish that Mary's body had been moved three times before it had been found.
1: They think that she was first placed on bottles and cans by some trees where she wasn't exposed to direct sunlight. Then she was dragged just a few feet away into an open field. Then the killer left the scene and at another date moved her body a few more feet away. And you just wonder why the killer did this. Each time they only moved it a few feet. So, I mean, what was the reason for it? I think that says a lot about the killer.
0: Yeah, well, one thing that we know from that is that this killer was coming back to visit the crime scene, probably because it gave him pleasure in doing so. But I really don't understand the moving of the body a few feet over.
1: It's weird.
0: This murder was incredibly gruesome, and it really shook the community. People didn't know what was coming next. But as time passed and no one else had been murdered in this brutal of a fashion, the town of Ypsilanti started to believe that they were safe. But just less than a year after Mary's death, on June 30th, 1968, another young woman went missing. Her name was Joan Shell. And she was a 20-year-old girl who also attended Eastern Michigan University to study art. And strangely enough, she only lived three blocks away from Mary. Born on December 1st, 1947 in New Paris, Wisconsin, she spent a lot of her upbringing and life in Plymouth, Michigan before moving to Ypsilanti to begin attending college. While in school, she worked part-time in the student cafeteria. Joan was known to be a quiet, just very well-liked young woman who was very close with her family. She was a gorgeous, stylish brunette who, on the day she disappeared, was on her way to Ann Arbor so she could visit her boyfriend. Her roommate Susan walked her to the bus stop so she could take the 20-minute ride to Ann Arbor.
1: Joan realized she missed her bus, so she decided to hitchhike, which obviously was more popular back then for girls this age. I think it's just more widely known to be a dangerous thing now, so less people do it. But
0: Yeah, definitely. I think back, back then it wasn't as scary because a lot of people didn't know of the dangers of hitchhiking, but now we do, and I think that the hitchhiking popul- population has probably gone down.
1: Exactly. So while Susan waited with Joan for about 45 minutes, a red and black Pontiac Bonneville with three young white men inside pulled up to them. Susan later stated that they seemed to be about their age and that the driver had dark hair. They asked the girls if they wanted a ride, and Joan said yes. Susan, again, is her roommate. She tried to convince her not to go, probably since they were three boys and it didn't seem like the most trustworthy ride choice, but she went anyways. And the driver was wearing an Eastern Michigan University sweatshirt, so that probably put Joan a bit more at ease since... They went to the same school. And Joan told Susan that she would call her when she got to her boyfriend's apartment. But nearly three hours passed and Susan hadn't gotten a single phone call. It was only supposed to be 20 or so minutes away. So within three hours, she definitely would have gotten there. And since Joan had gone off with three young men who were strangers, Susan called the police to file a report.
0: So five days later, on July 5th, 1968, Joan Shell's body was found in a storm drain near the side of the road in Ann Arbor by construction workers. She had been raped and stabbed 25 times. Her carotid artery had been slashed due to her throat being cut, along with her liver and her lungs had been punctured. Her skull was fractured and her blue miniskirt was tied around her neck. It was determined that Joan's body had been lying there for less than a day, despite the fact that she had been dead for about five days.
1: So this could have been another situation where the killer moved her body multiple times since she had been dead for days before she got to that final spot. Also, I wonder if the killer had put Joan's skirt around her neck or if she had done that. Because she had obviously been stabbed many times, but I wish that we knew if her miniskirt was tied in an attempt to strangle her or if she had been alive when the killer left her and maybe she put her skirt around her neck to stop the bleeding. Because we know the carotid artery was slashed, which would cause her to bleed severely, not to mention she'd been stabbed 25 times. It just doesn't seem like it makes very much sense why the killer would put it there since he had slashed her neck. So strangling would kind of be out of the question.
0: Yeah, I wish I ca I wish I knew that information as well. I don't really know just because he had moved the body, it seems like he had moved the body, probably. Like the first victim, Mary Flesher, I don't know if she would have been alive at that time to be able to put the mini skirt around her neck. She probably would have been dead by the time the body was moved the last time.
1: No, I don't mean like put her skirt around her neck when she got to the final resting place. I mean, like, maybe he killed her and then left and she was still alive, so she was like, I have to stop the bleeding, and she pulled up her skirt kind of thing, because it just doesn't really make sense why he would do that.
0: Yeah, I get what you're saying. I totally get what you're saying. I don't really know. Now that police knew Joan was murdered and not just missing, they looked for every person in the state of Michigan who owned a red and black vehicle. But there were about 150 of them, and they had Susan actually help them narrow down the search since she had seen both the car and the driver. They found a few men who seemed to fit the description of the men Susan described, but remember, this is the late 60s, so they didn't have the same access as we do today as far as information and photos go. But after this, the lead went cold, and no new information surfaced for nearly two months.
1: In the end of summer 1968, a witness came forward and told police that they saw Joan Shell on the evening that she would have disappeared and that she had been walking with a young man. Both this witness and Joan's roommate, Susan, came up with a description of the men that they saw, and it appeared to be the same kind of person. That's when the name John Norman Collins first came up. He was also a student at Eastern Michigan University and, at this time, was around 21 years old. He was also an honors student, a football and baseball player, and Catholic. He was very much like an all-American guy, so although he didn't seem like he would be guilty of brutally murdering anybody, police brought him in for questioning.
0: When asked if he knew Joan Shell, he said that he had never met her or even seen her and that he was in Detroit visiting his mom when she disappeared. He also said that he had stayed with his mom until July 1st, which was the day after Joan went missing. Police didn't see him as a threat and he seemed like a pretty nice guy who stayed relaxed during their conversation, so they didn't even check out his alibi. They just believed what he said and decided to set their sights elsewhere. They also, of course, questioned Jones' 19-year-old boyfriend, Dale Schultz. He was living near the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor and working at a restaurant. He had been in the army and went AWOL, which piqued the police's interest. They gave him a polygraph test, which he passed, and after questioning him, police didn't consider him a suspect.
1: And they had actually questioned Dale before anyone else and just two hours after they found Joan. When they told him what happened to her, they said he seemed shocked and very upset. He broke down into tears right away. And even worse for him, police released him to military personnel since he had gone AWOL and he was put in an army prison. So he finds out his girlfriend was brutally murdered, and then because of that, he goes to prison for something unrelated. Copies of the composite sketch were dispersed all around the area, and a $15,000 reward was set up to be given to anyone who could provide information regarding the killer that would lead to an arrest. Since they knew that Joan's body had been moved, they also knew that wherever the murder was committed, there would be a lot of blood. They just didn't know where to look. Again, months passed and things kind of tapered off, until another body was found the following year in 1969.
0: On March 20th, 1969, so nearly nine months after Joan was murdered, another young woman disappeared. She was 23-year-old Jane Mixer, a University of Michigan law student who was incredibly intelligent and bright. She had posted on a bulletin board at her school asking if someone could give her a ride to Muskegon which was her hometown located on the Lake Michigan shore. She was planning to go home to her family and tell them about her engagement to her boyfriend, who was in graduate school at the time, and their plans to move to New York City. Jane told her parents that she was leaving Ann Arbor at 6 p.m. and that she would be home around 9.30 p.m. But when it was 11 p.m. and Jane still hadn't come home, her dad got into his car and started driving around looking for her. The next day... Her body was found in Denton Cemetery.
1: Denton Cemetery is in Belleville, Michigan, which is just outside Ypsilanti. But since Jane was living in Ann Arbor, it was strange that she would end up in Belleville since it was 20 miles east, especially since her hometown of Muskegon was 172 miles in the opposite direction. On March 21, 1969, at around 10 a.m., A woman who lived just near the cemetery was on a walk, and she saw someone laying in the grass on a grave. It startled her because she didn't know why someone would be laying in a cemetery, so she decided to get a closer look. As soon as she saw that it was a young girl who appeared to be dead, her body was covered with a raincoat, uh, she screamed and ran to her sister's house, who was also nearby, so she could call the police.
0: The police arrived quickly on that chilly Michigan morning and immediately noticed that the young woman had been shot in the head, but after examining the scene further, they noticed a lot of very strange details. Jane had been strangled with a pair of pantyhose, which were not hers, but she was also shot in the head twice, once in the front and once in the back. Her pantyhose had been pulled down while her skirt was pulled up, yet there was no evidence of sexual assault at all. Like Daphne said, There was a raincoat laying on top of her body, and her arm was covering her face, almost as if the killer was trying to maintain her modesty. There was a copy of Joseph Heller's best-selling novel Catch-22 lying next to her body.
1: And I wonder if that was her book, or if that was supposed to be some, like, message from the killer?
0: Yeah, I kind of wish we knew that information. I, I mean, I would reach to say that it was her book, but it very well could have been placed there as, like, a sign, or some sort of mysterious message
1: right so the coroner determined that jane was murdered around 3 a.m in a different location and was then moved to the cemetery once she was deceased when police checked jane's dorm for any kind of evidence that could prove who she got a ride from they opened her phone book to see a mark next to the name david johnson who was also a university of michigan student. When they questioned him, he was quickly ruled out because of his airtight alibi, and he was actually acting in a play, so many people could confirm this. Her fiancé, Phil, was mortified and shattered when he heard the news, and police questioned him as well, but didn't consider him a suspect either. And if anyone is interested in learning more about Jane specifically, Her sister Barbara's daughter is Maggie Nelson, who's a poet, and she wrote a beautiful book that's one of my all-time favorites. It's called Jane, a Murder. It's a poetry book that kind of helps you get to know Jane a little bit more through her journal entries and through Maggie's representation of who she thinks Jane, her would-be aunt, was. And Maggie wrote a follow-up book called The Red Parts that's about Jane's trial, and I'm reading that right now. Uh, The Red Parts isn't a poetry book, it's more of like an autobiography, and it's great.
0: Jane's murder was very different from the other girls, but brutal nonetheless. And since there weren't a lot of horrific murders against young college girls in the area, police believed that they were all connected. Both Mary and Joan had been stabbed while Jane was shot and strangled. And while it appeared that Mary and Joan were sexually assaulted, Jane was not but they still believed that they were all committed by the same person. Since it took place in the very same area, and again, they were all young, beautiful, brunette college girls.
1: Just four days after Jane's body was found, yet another body was discovered in the area. It was 16-year-old Marilyn Skelton, who was just in high school when she disappeared while hitchhiking in Ann Arbor. So these girls already have another thing in common. They were all looking for a ride, Well, except Mary, who had been on a walk, but still, she was on the road nonetheless. Marilyn was last seen outside a restaurant just two days before her body was found by a crew who was working on a house on the property, which was just about 400 yards away from where Joan's body had been found. Her body was found nude, and her head had been so badly beaten that one-third of her skull was shattered. There was a shirt jammed into her throat and a garter belt was around her neck. She had been sexually assaulted with a tree branch and there were signs that she had been whipped with a leather strap. Her body had no identification on it, so police had no idea who she was. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volix XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volex XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, just visit
0: Juvederm.com. They started looking at missing people in the area and quickly found a flyer for a teenage girl named Marilyn Skelton. She hadn't shown up to meet her friend, and she also hadn't shown up for an appointment that she had at Eastern Michigan University, so she was reported missing by her parents. Police made the connection between the missing girl and the poster to the body they found and broke the heartbreaking news to her family. The injuries that Marilyn subdued were the worst that one of the investigators had ever seen in his 30 years of police work. So bad that during her funeral, they had to tilt her head to one side so that they could cover up the damage that she sustained.
1: So now the police were dealing with a real issue. More bodies were turning up, and they had virtually no evidence whatsoever about who exactly was committing these horrific crimes against young women in the area. But luckily, they were taking it very seriously, and 20 investigators were assigned to work the case. Here's a list of what they knew. All the girls, except Jane Mixer, had been beaten before they died. They were all found in the same general area. They were all brunette, white, and young. They all, again except Jane Mixer, had their throats cut or had some sort of knife wound to their necks. They all had a clothing article of sorts tied around their neck. And they were all menstruating when they died, which is just an odd coincidence.
0: Since Jane Mixer's death was the only one that seemed a bit different than the others, police began to believe that she may have been killed by someone who was trying to copy this killer but they didn't have evidence to prove it. So they felt at least three of the four murders were done by the same person. Just about two weeks later, on April 16, 1969, the body of 13-year-old Dawn Louise Bassam was found on a deserted road in Ypsilanti. So now we have a victim who's 10 years younger than one of the other victims, which really broadened this whole case. The killer wasn't just targeting college girls anymore. Even though Marilyn Skelton wasn't in college, she did have a meeting on campus, so she may have been confused as a college student.
1: Dawn was in eighth grade in middle school at the time of her death and had spent her last night walking home from her friend's house after they all hung out for a while. She walked with her other friend about halfway before they went their separate ways and then Dawn just had about five blocks to go until she would have reached her house in Ypsilanti. This all happened around 7.30 p.m., so it wasn't too late, and since it was April, it wasn't dark outside yet, but the sun was setting. When she didn't come home that night, her mom reported her missing, and she was found dead the following day. Dawn had been stabbed
0: in the chest and genitals multiple times, and her body had been slashed in many different places. But her cause of death was strangulation by an electrical cord that was found knotted around her neck. Her bra had also been tied around her neck, and a handkerchief was found stuffed down her throat. She only had a blouse on when they found her, and the rest of her was nude. So her death was very similar to 16-year-old Marilyn's, who had been killed just a couple weeks prior. Police searched the area and found Dawn's orange sweater in an abandoned barn, and it bore bloodstains. There was also a piece of an electrical cord found there, so police believed that this was the other part of the one that was around her neck, and that she had been murdered in that barn.
1: A little less than three months later, a sixth victim would be found in a field near the farmhouse that Don had been killed in. Three teenage boys had discovered the partially nude body of 21-year-old Alice Elizabeth Kalem, who was a student at the University of Michigan. And I just wanted to state something so no one's confused. The University of Michigan is in Ann Arbor, and the Eastern Michigan University is a different college that's in Ypsilanti. So some of the victims went to one college and some went to the other, but they're just about 15 to 20 minutes away from each other, so it's all very close. Alice was a fine arts graduate student who originally was from Indiana, and on the night of Saturday, June 7th, 1969, she went to her musician friend's house to celebrate their birthday. She was last seen dancing the night away at the party until around midnight. Alice's
0: partially nude body was found in Ann Arbor in a field of tall grass two days later at around 4 p.m. She had suffered multiple stab wounds to her body, one of which severed her spine. One of her thumbs had been shot off, which police believe occurred when she was trying to defend herself by holding up her hands, and she had been raped. Again, no evidence had been left at the scene, and the police had no leads. There were no witnesses to any of these crimes, and the only lead that they had was the description of the driver of the car that Joan Shell had gotten into, thanks to her friend Susan, along with the witness who spotted Joan walking with a young man. But other than that, police didn't have any solid leads.
1: Women in the area, especially young women and college students, began carrying knives and pepper spray and they tried not to hitchhike. The news was everywhere, so people were being much more cautious of their surroundings. At this point, there was a $42,000 reward being offered to put this killer to rest once and for all. Meanwhile, police looked into over 1,000 sex offenders in the general area and followed up on hundreds and hundreds of tips, but each one led them to a dead end. There was even a group of Michigan businessmen who raised money in order to hire an LA psychic to travel to Michigan and develop a profile of this killer. I don't know if this guy was like really well known, maybe he's like the best in the biz, but I would assume so if they flew him out from California. But The psychic felt that the killer was a muscular white male under the age of 25 who was born outside of the U.S. He stated that he rode a motorcycle and even told the police that the killer would strike one more time and that it would be soon.
0: And the psychic from L.A., his name was actually Peter Herkos, and he had worked on finding clues for the Manson family murders as well as the Boston Strangler case.
1: Okay. So he was the best in the biz.
0: Basically. Yeah. He had worked on some very big cases before he jumped on the Michigan murders case.
1: And I think it's pretty cool that complete strangers who just had money decided to do this, to try and save this community because these young women, I mean, as you can tell so far were brutally murdered and it was just scaring this town. I mean, they had nothing to go off of. So the fact that these strangers were just like, we're going to bring this psychic in and see what he can do to help it was really cool.
0: Right. And I know how a lot of our listeners, I mean, not all of them, but some of our listeners probably feel about psychics and maybe, maybe don't believe in that or, or whatnot. But at this point in time, investigators really had no leads. So people around the area were doing literally anything that they could do to try and solve this case.
1: I feel like a lot of people who don't believe in psychics feel like they can use psychics as a last resort to just kind of see. Actually, Heath and I last night we watched this movie from two thousand with Kate Blanchett and Keanu Reeves. It's called The Gift, and basically the main character, Kate Blanchett, she's a psychic or fortune teller, whatever they call her in the movie, and they use her for help in a murder case. And like the the sheriff doesn't really believe in what she does, but even he's like, okay, let's see what she can do. So I mean, I think it's kind of like may as well try it.
0: Right, especially if you've got really nothing to go on, you might as well try that. Too bad in that movie, Keanu Reeves is actually
1: a bad guy. We love you, Keanu.
0: The last victim in this case was 18-year-old Karen Sue Beneman. She was a student at Eastern Michigan University in Ypsilanti. She was last seen at a local wig shop where she had picked up a hairpiece, and one of the clerks remembered seeing her leave and getting on the back of a young man's motorcycle.
1: And that's really eerie as well, that the psychic had said the last victim would die very soon and that the killer rode a motorcycle, because up to this point, there was no evidence or like any piece of information that made anyone believe that the killer rode a motorcycle at all.
0: Yeah, there was no mention of any motorcycle by any of the witnesses or anyone else.
1: Yeah, anyone who saw anything, like the neighbor with Mary, uh, the neighbor had seen a car pull up to Mary, And same thing with Joan, um, with the Pontiac that Susan saw. So we're always talking about cars. So the fact that the psychic brought up a motorcycle is weird. Well, and
0: it's also kind of crazy because we have three different vehicles used during during this string of murders. So we have the blue and gray car, the red and black car, and now we have this motorcycle coming into play.
1: So Karen disappeared about two to three weeks after Alice was killed. And Karen's roommate was the one to report her missing when she didn't show up for their dorm curfew. Especially with all the horrifying news circling the area, her roommate immediately was worried that something had happened to her. And three days later, she was found nude about 30 miles north of Ypsilanti along the Haran River Parkway. Her cause of death was strangulation, but she had also endured multiple blunt force trauma injuries to her head and face. She had chemical burns on her body and even inside her throat after the killer had likely made her ingest some kind of toxic substance. Karen had been raped and a handkerchief stuffed down her throat like many of the other victims. Unlike in the other murders, though, there was semen found on her. There was also some small blonde hair clippings found there, but Karen was brunette, so this stood out to investigators.
0: And the really unfortunate thing about this is that there was semen found at the scene, but back then there was no DNA testing. They didn't have the ability to test that semen. And because if they could have, I'm sure they would have been able to catch him. Um, Because remember, this is the late 60s. So there may have been semen found at the other scenes, but maybe it was harder to identify. But that's kind of the unfortunate thing, but also the great thing about us having this DNA technology today. After this murder, the police conducted a news blackout. The reason that they did this was because they wanted to try and trick the killer. And this was actually really smart on their part because they knew that he was the kind of killer who liked to return to the scene and move the body. So they decided to take Karen's body away from the scene and replace it with a mannequin. Then they planned to stake out the area and try and catch the killer, who they were now calling the Ypsilanti Ripper and the Co-Ed Killer.
1: Not to be mistaken with Ed Kemper, the Co-Ed Killer.
0: Yeah, so basically this guy was the original Co-Ed Killer. The following morning at around 2 a.m., an investigator spotted someone running through the scene during a rainstorm, but the officer couldn't immediately report the sighting, due to a bad radio connection from the storm.
1: While some investigators staked out the crime scene, a couple others went over to the wig shop to get more information from the clerk. The owner of the shop, whose name was Diana, had also seen the man. She said that he had dark hair and was waiting outside for Karen to come out. She had accepted the ride from him before she even entered the store. So while Karen was in the store, she actually told the owner, I've got to be either the bravest or the dumbest girl alive because I've just accepted a ride from this guy. So that gave the owner the impression that Karen didn't know this young man, but that he had approached her on her way into the shop. And I think it's really interesting that she said that. I wonder if she said that because of all the murders that were happening. So saying she's got to be dumb to accept a ride from this guy because there's a killer out there. Like I wonder, I wonder what exactly she meant by that.
0: I'm kind of assuming that that's what she meant, just because there was so much chaos going on in this area, this small area of Michigan at that time.
1: Which makes it even crazier that it turned out to be the killer, because obviously she felt safe enough about him and accepting a ride from him that she didn't think he would be the killer.
0: Right, and what are the chances? I mean, it may have been possible that people in this area had a, a rough description of the killer. But what are the chances that it would actually end up being him?
1: Right. And the only real description we had was after Joan's death when she had taken a ride from a young man, but they didn't know if the young man had dropped her off in Ann Arbor and she, would, she was killed by somebody else. So they really didn't know who this guy was. So, I mean, especially with Karen taking a ride from a young college student, she didn't think that that would be bad, which makes sense. I mean, someone your age who seems like a nice guy it makes sense that she wouldn't seem threatened.
0: I suppose. I just don't know what the reason would be for her to say that about herself.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. Especially if you're going to say, well, I must be really dumb to take a ride from this guy means that there's a potential risk.
0: Yeah, definitely. And obviously, we're not trying to victim shame anybody. She took the ride, and I'm sure a lot of people would have taken that ride, but it is very tragic to hear that she had thought it was kind of risky and it ended up being that way.
1: Right. And that's what I meant by saying that I I understand that she would. And we'll get more into this when we talk more about the identity of the killer. But I mean, it makes sense that she felt safe by this young college student because she herself was a young college student.
0: So after hearing the description of the young man from the wig shop owner, the officer immediately thought of John Norman Collins, The guy who had been questioned after Joan's murder, but he had told police that he was visiting his mom in Detroit that weekend. Apparently, he was known to ride motorcycles around campus. When police brought him in for questioning, he admitted to have been on his motorcycle that day Karen disappeared. But he had an apparent alibi yet again. He said he had been visiting his ex-girlfriend. So the officer took photos of John over to the wig shop owner, Diana, to see what she thought. And as soon as she saw the photo, she knew that was the guy she had seen outside her shop on a motorcycle with Karen.
1: Looking to save on delivery? DashPass is your door to $0 delivery fees and more on DoorDash. And right now, using code GOINGWEST24, you can get 50% off up to $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass. Subject to change, terms apply.
0: Daphne and I use DoorDash constantly to order lunch or dinner or even groceries. And that's why we love using our DashPass. Because it's the most affordable way to get anything in your area delivered right to your door.
1: I mean, come on. DashPass pays for itself in two orders on average, making delivery even more worth it. And that's why we use it so often. And it also gives you special access to exclusive promotions and member-only menu items, all for just $9.99 a month.
0: Get more from delivery for less. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash.
1: Use code GOINGWEST24 to get 50% off up to a $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass. Subject to change, terms apply. My absolute favorite app is Audible, because not only do they have thousands of incredible podcasts, including ours, but they also have an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre. Like from celebrity memoirs, to motivation, to business, to my favorite, mysteries and thrillers. Audible really is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment, with highly anticipated new releases that can include eerie soundscapes, captivating sound design, and dynamic performances. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Right now, I'm listening to this unputdownable thriller fiction called Just Another Missing Person by Jillian McAllister, which I think you guys would love.
0: To try Audible free for 30 days, visit audible.com slash going west or text going west to 500-500.
1: That's audible.com slash going west or text going west to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. So, at this point, they only had circumstantial evidence on him, but they also used this opportunity to watch him and see if they could catch him slipping. They also started questioning people who knew John. And they got back some interesting stories. Some people told the officers that John was very aggressive towards women and had even raped a schoolmate who rejected him. His former frat brother stated that he was a thief, and even his co said he talked about the murders. Just a day after Karen's body was found, the wig shop owner positively identified John once again, but this time it was in a police lineup. John didn't want to take a polygraph test and continued to deny his involvement in the crimes.
0: John's roommate, whose name was Emmett, went to police later that day and told them that he had seen John leaving their apartment carrying a box covered with a blanket. He said that the box contained a woman's purple shoe, rolled up denim, and a purse. And when John came back later, he didn't have a box with him. It's important to note here that John Norman Collins was the nephew of Police Sergeant David Lake. But Sergeant Lake wasn't trying to cover up anything for John. He didn't know if his nephew was involved, but John had told police that the only reason he knew about the murders was because his uncle told him details, which the sergeant outright denied. Two days later, Sergeant Lake had returned home from vacation with his wife. While they were gone, they asked John to house-sit for them. But when they got back, they noticed that washing powder, black spray paint, and ammonia had been taken from their home. Along with the missing items, they noticed multiple paint marks on their basement floor. That's when Sergeant Lake found out that his colleagues were investigating his nephew.
1: Also, I forgot to mention earlier that when Alice died, she was missing a shoe, and she was wearing purple shoes. So that's really important when Emma is describing that there was a purple shoe in that box. I don't know if it matched. I never ended up finding that out, but that's just really interesting because not many people wear purple shoes. So after Sergeant Lake found out that his colleagues were looking at his nephew, he started to become a little bit suspicious about the paint stains and the missing cleaning products. He had his colleagues come by and test some suspicious looking stains in his basement, and they turned out to be blood. And I just want to kind of commend the sergeant for doing this because, you know, his nephew is watching his house. He notices something weird. And he also knows that his nephew is now a potential suspect in a multi-murder case. So I feel like for him to say, hey, he watched my house and now suddenly there's these weird stains on the floor and there's some cleaning products missing. I'm getting a little suspicious. And for him to have the police come check it out is really cool. Instead of just turning a blind eye and saying, oh, this is my family member. I can't, you know, turn him in like this kind of thing.
0: Yeah. And we see that happen in a lot of different cases where there's the son of a wealthy man or the son of a police chief or something, something similar like that. And a lot of times I think that there is evidence covered up. But in this case, the sergeant did what was right
1: especially because this was such a big deal. I mean, now there is a confirmation that there is blood found in the basement that wasn't there before the sergeant and his family went on vacation. And the only person who was supposed to be in the house was John Norman Collins. So I think that, I mean, this really cracked it open. And if it wasn't for the sergeant telling them about this suspicion, then maybe it wouldn't have gone anywhere. So going back to the basement, Police also noticed some small blonde hair clippings, which turned out to be from the haircut that Sergeant Lake's wife gave their children before they left for vacation. The hair samples appeared to be the very same that were found at the scene of Karen's murder. When they tested the small blood stains on the basement floor, it was determined that they were type A, which was the same blood type as Karen. And again, this was 1969, so they couldn't actually test it against her real blood, confirming that it was the same. But this is as close as a match as they could get in this day and age.
0: Right. There's only so many different blood types. So being able to at least identify that it was the same was a step closer.
1: And with the hair clipping thing, like we had stated, she was a brunette and these little pieces of hair. You know, when you cut your hair, you got these little pieces of hair, like these little cuts. Right. Those were found on her body and they were found in the basement. That's just like, what are the odds? They're slim to none.
0: Yeah, exactly. Police again had questioned John and told him what they had found in his uncle's basement. And he immediately broke down into tears. Then, he calmed down and told police that he knew nothing about Karen's death. But police had enough evidence to arrest him. So on July 29, 1969, just six days after Karen's body was found, and over two years after Mary, his first victim, had been murdered, John Norman Collins was arrested. But just for the murder of Karen Sue Beniman, since that was the only evidence that they had at the time. After the news of his arrest hit the streets, multiple young women called into police and stated that John had been aggressive with them after he offered them a ride and they rejected him.
1: Right. And I mean, luckily, those women didn't get in the car with him. But that kind of gives you a glimpse of his anger. And I don't know why multiple women would lie about this, because so many people before this, also when the police interviewed his friends and classmates and stuff also said that he was aggressive towards women. So this really aligns in the story.
0: So it's kind of strange that he would play this whole nice guy, hey, can I give you a ride? And then when he was turned down, he just immediately flipped and got super angry and aggressive.
1: John Norman Collins was born on June 17, 1947, in Center Line, Michigan, to his mother Loretta, since his dad was completely out of the picture. Loretta married a man shortly after, and John took his last name, but the marriage didn't last long at all since he was very abusive and an alcoholic. So Loretta divorced him by the time John was just four years old. John was always known to be very shy and polite as a kid, and he loved playing sports. He was raised in a Catholic household and he was an honor student, along with being tri captain of the football team president of the C Club, which is an organization devoted to building a better community. And he was a star pitcher on the baseball team. So this is a very promising young man who could have achieved greatness, but he had his demons. And Heath and I had a whole debate about this a couple days ago because it's pretty shocking that all these horrific things were done by someone who seems so unsuspecting. And for those of you who aren't driving, go to our Instagram at Podcast or our Twitter at Pod and check out the photos of him. I hate to say this because of what he's done, but he's almost handsome or at least charming enough looking to where you might feel like you could trust him. I mean, you would never look at him and assume that he would be a killer or a rapist. And going back to what we were saying about Karen getting on his motorcycle, he just looks like someone you could trust. Like I said earlier, he's like an all-American boy. He doesn't look like he would ever do something as horrific as the things that we mentioned, which just makes this whole thing so much scarier.
0: And I know that this is somewhat speculation, but... I feel like killers who, when they're younger, maybe aren't attractive or aren't pop- popular or are kind of loners, those are the ones that feel like they're getting back at the world for being so mean to them, um, so to speak. But I feel like in John Norman Collins' case, he was a good-looking guy. You know, He was a, an athlete. Um, he was an honor student. So in my opinion... This is kind of open and shut narcissism because I feel like when you're a good looking kid and you have everything going for you and you start committing murders, I think in my mind, to me, it tells me that you're trying to prove that you are God or better than the police or smarter than the community.
1: And I'm not a psychologist, but I think it also does go back to his childhood, which I think every killer, we can look back at their childhood and say something. You know, his dad was totally out of the picture, and a lot of people will say that men or boys need their father kind of thing. And he didn't have a father figure. And the only one that he did was an abusive alcoholic. So I feel like that probably affected him a lot to the point where, like you said, he's a narcissist. He's like, I'm handsome. I can get whatever I want. I'm talented, la la la. And that also makes sense to why he would get so angry when women would reject him. You know, like, what do you mean? You're rejecting me kind of thing.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like you're rejecting this good-looking young guy who's offering you a ride, I totally get that. And I'm not like I'm not a psychologist either, and I'm not trying to say that I'm right about this, but in this sense, I mean, he really had a lot of things going for him.
1: I totally agree with you.
0: Yeah, and you know, maybe a lot of this anger and a lot of this hatred really does stem back to his mother being in abusive relationships with men who were alcoholics. And John was a very popular guy, and girls seemed to actually really like him until they got to know him. Many stated that John seemed very respectful and nice, but when it came down to it, he was extremely aggressive, especially when it came to sex. He was very angry. So Centerline is just outside of Detroit, but when it came time for college, John decided to head over to Ypsilanti and study education at Eastern Michigan University. He joined the Theta Chi fraternity, became the president of the ski club, and played a ton of other sports at school. But after someone had suspected him of stealing from the fraternity, he was forced to leave. At this time, he was also working part-time on campus as a clerk.
1: John had a petty criminal record before he ever committed murder. He had stolen a ton of parts for his four motorcycles, and although cheating isn't a crime... He had been caught cheating a couple times in college and became short on credits, but John didn't seem to really mind having to stay in school longer because of it. At the time of his arrest, he was only 22 years old, and in many of the photos you'll find of him in handcuffs, he's smiling big for the camera. And this, this says a lot to me, too. There's also a picture that I saw there, Polaroids, of him taken at the station, and he's he literally is looking at the camera with a big smile on his face, which I just no one innocent would do that
0: yeah that screams attention seeker to me it seems like exactly he wants he wants people to see him in handcuffs he wants the media to be there i mean he already knows that he's pretty much going down for these crimes so for him to get as much attention out of the situation as he can he's gonna do it there was one more murder that police believe john was behind On June 30th, 1969, so over a month before John was arrested, a 17-year-old girl in Salinas, California named Roxy Ann Phillips was murdered. Someone contacted investigators in Salinas to state that they believed a Michigan man named John had killed Roxy, and that's when police contacted the investigators working on the Michigan murders. One of Roxy's friends had told police that Roxy told her She had started talking to a young man named John who was a student at Eastern Michigan University. At that time, he was visiting the area which is how they met. The friend also stated that she heard from Roxy that he drove an Oldsmobile Cutlass.
1: Turns out, on June 21st, so nine days before Roxy was found dead, John and his roommate Andrew had traveled across country to Monterey, California, which is just 20 miles from Salinas, in John's Oldsmobile Cutlass. He and Roxy had met two days before she was found dead. The friend also mentioned that he was supposedly around 5'11", clean-cut, and had dark brown hair, which sounds exactly like John Norman Collins. And she even mentioned that he wanted to be a teacher, which we know that John was attending EMU to study education. Police questioned Andrew about this, and he denied knowing anything about Roxy's death. There was no evidence to indict John Norman Collins for Roxy's murder, but it's heavily believed that he was behind it.
0: And even scarier when we talk about the fact that John was trying to get into education, he was actually trying to become a kindergarten teacher. No. Could you even imagine this guy, this multiple murderer, becoming your child's kindergarten teacher? What a horrifying thought.
1: I've never heard a case about a, a killer being a teacher or wanting to be a teacher, have you?
0: I mean, I'm sure there's a bunch out there. I haven't heard of any specifically, but I'm sure there are some.
1: I'm sure. Well, actually, the reason I bring that up, Heath, uh, like, read me the list of the most popular jobs for serial killers. It's really interesting to read that, by the way. But obviously, teacher is a horrifying job because you're surrounded by kids all day long. I mean, that's scary.
0: Yeah, and surprisingly on that list, police and security guards and military personnel were on that list.
1: Which makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you were a killer, that's what you'd want to be, you know?
0: Yeah, you'd have a lot of opportunity that way. On August 14th, 1969, John attended his pretrial hearing in Ypsilanti, where it was determined that there was enough probable cause to put him on trial for Karen Beneman's murder, and remember Karen is the last victim who had likely met John outside of the wig shop. The following year, on June 2nd, 1970, the trial began. The prosecutors stated their beliefs that John had taken Karen to his uncle's house, where he tortured, battered, and strangled her to death before moving and disposing of her body.
1: Several witnesses testified in trial saying that they saw John doing something suspicious or they experienced him acting out in anger or aggression. There were 47 witnesses. The last witness was a chemistry professor who analyzed the hair samples found on Karen's body versus the ones found in the basement. He explained how remarkably similar they were. And again, like we said, there wasn't good enough DNA technology available at this time to actually prove it. But this man, who is a professional, looked at the samples and to him, they looked the same. So the trial went on for about two and a half months. And this was just for the one murder, remember. On August 19th, 1970, after 27 hours of deliberation total for the jury, John was found guilty of the first-degree murder of Karen Beneman. It was stated that he didn't express any emotion when this verdict was read while his mom and sister burst into tears in the audience. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And while
0: this all was happening, a grand jury was attempting to extradite John Norman Collins to California for Roxy Phillips' murder because they actually had the most physical and circumstantial evidence connecting him to this murder than any of the other ones that we mentioned in this story. But since he had just received a life sentence in Michigan, they also didn't think that his case deserved priority over others in the state. So they waived the extradition proceedings. For years, John didn't want to be interviewed by the media, until around six years later when he requested an interview with the Ann Arbor News. He stated that he was innocent and the jury was just biased.
1: In November 2019, they discovered a DNA match on Alice Callum's clothes. She was the sixth victim. Around this time, it was also discovered that John had written his cousin two letters back in 2013 detailing the murders and basically stating his guilt. But he later denied that he ever said these things. But his story also changed, and he stated in an interview that he had taken Alice on a motorcycle ride, but that he didn't kill her. And Karen was the one outside the wig shop who we know that he took on a motorcycle ride. So he's now saying that he took Alice on one too, but that he didn't kill her. And then he also said that he had met Karen before she died, but that he didn't actually kill her. So either way, he changed his story, which is always very suspicious.
0: Police always had a feeling that the death of 23-year-old Eastern Michigan University law student Joan Mixer didn't quite fit with the other murders, and they were right. In 2005, a 62-year-old man named Gary Lederman, who was a nurse, was convicted of killing Jane Mixer after a DNA match was made. When Jane's crime scene was being examined, there were two conflicting samples. So Gary's DNA had been matched after he had entered the system after getting arrested for forging a prescription for opiates since he was addicted to pills. And the other sample was a drop of blood found on Jane's hand. The weird thing is that the blood matched the DNA of a man named John Roulas, who was a convicted killer that murdered his mom. But when Jane's murder took place, John was only four years old. So, people think that he may have come across the crime scene and bled on her, and he was known to be a nosebleeder as a kid. Other than the DNA match, Gary's old roommate stated that, at the time of the murder, Gary was an avid hunter and even owned a 22 caliber gun, the same kind Jane was killed with.
1: And Gary never admitted his guilt. I think he pled not guilty. He still went to prison for it, but he didn't admit To killing Jane at all or give any details about her murder, but you can read more about this trial and the death of Jane Mixer in the book The Red Parts by Maggie Nelson, who again is Jane's sister Barbara's daughter, so she would have been Jane's niece. John Norman
0: Collins is currently still serving his life sentence at the Marquette Branch Prison in Michigan, where he maintains his innocence in the Michigan murders.
1: One major thing that I'm confused about is how they haven't gotten John for more DNA comparison because in Alice's death, there was semen found, yet I didn't find anywhere in my research that it matched John's DNA or anyone else's. So obviously when the murders occurred, they couldn't do the DNA testing, But they still collected a lot of evidence that could be tested today, just like they did with Gary Lederman. Because with Gary, what happened was they had entered the DNA into the system when the system was created. And then when Gary's DNA was put, because they had to take a swab of his mouth when he was arrested. So what they did was they put that swab of DNA into the system and it came up as a match for the DNA that was found on Jane's body. So you would assume that that would have happened with John as well for the DNA that they did collect. And I know that for a lot of the murders, they said, oh, there was no DNA found. But for the murders where there was, like, i.e. the semen, I don't know what happened with that. And I looked into this specifically for a while, and I couldn't find it. If anyone else has researched this case, I mean, I know there are books on it. This case has so much information. We could cover like four episodes on this case alone, but I couldn't personally find in the research I did this week anything about this specific thing.
0: It's strange to me that he was only found guilty for the one murder and they didn't really even try to go after him and try him for these other murders.
1: Well, it was just because they only had circumstantial evidence. I mean. The same thing with with Jane Mixer, because we know that that was done by somebody else. So technically, the other murders could have been done by somebody else, too. So it's not like they can say, oh, well, we got him for this one. So obviously he did all the other ones because they didn't have any hard evidence of that. Like they had the blood and the hair clippings for Karen.
0: Right. But what I, I guess what I'm saying is if. He had explained that he had given Alice a ride on his motorcycle. I think that maybe they should have taken another look at that and maybe just tried to see if maybe there was any other evidence that they could test.
1: And like I said, I mean, if you're going to change your story, that's textbook suspicious. And if you're even going to change your story and say, oh, I did meet these girls before they were murdered. Like that doesn't happen. You don't just happen to meet these two girls and yeah. then have all these other ties. Like, no, no you did this. Right.
0: I'm a convicted killer and I met these other victims who were murdered, but I didn't kill those other victims, which I guess I understand with the Jane Mixer case. That was kind of like, honestly, like a stick thrown in the spokes, because I think that kind of threw investigators off at the time. In my opinion, in my mind, he's guilty of these other murders.
1: What I do wonder though, with Joan Shell's murder, so she was the one who was hitchhiking and she had gotten into the red and black Pontiac, according to her roommate, Susan. And I wonder, so they had originally found John Norman Collins after this, when they were looking at everyone in the state of Michigan who was a registered owner of a red and black car. That kind of tells us that it is very likely that he actually did pick up Joan, but there were two other guys in the car. So I wonder if that was indeed John, why these other guys didn't come forward and say, I was in the car with John and maybe they weren't a part of the murder, but they at least knew, hey, that girl got into John's car. And at first I thought when I was originally um, researching this, I thought, oh, maybe that wasn't him. And he did bring her to Ann Arbor and just drop her off. But now knowing that he had the same kind of car, it's, It had to have been John who picked her up, but then who are these other two dudes and why didn't they come forward?
0: And I've thought about that as well. And there's a couple different scenarios that play in my mind. Possibly they were worried about being implicated in the murder. And then the second one is that it's possible that they were involved or had information or knew about the murder. But we don't really know because we don't have any evidence of this. We don't have any statements by these two other boys that were in the car. So I guess we'll probably never know.
1: Well, that's a good point, actually, because if they were involved or were accomplices in some way, then they would have gotten in trouble. So, you know, we hear about this all the time people knowing about crimes or having seen it, but don't want to talk about it or say anything because they don't want to get in trouble themselves. But it's like, this is what police make deals with people for. Like, give us the information and you'll get off. And if they would have done that, assuming that this was John in the car and that his two friends knew about it then so many women wouldn't have died right and I have to think
0: in my mind that the two guys that were in the car knew John to a certain extent so it's not like they were dropped dropped off before Joan was dropped off and then they just never heard about these string of murders happening or hear about John's trial they had to have known why didn't they come forward
1: and then also going back to the very first victim, who is Mary, the neighbor had seen her walking back to her apartment and that there was a grayish car driving next to her. So I know that John had four motorcycles, which makes me think that maybe he was like an auto, like an, what is the word? Yeah,
0: he was a car guy. He was a motorcycle guy. He was a mechanic guy.
1: Yeah, which makes it seem not surprising that maybe he also had a gray car. I mean, I wish that's something we knew too. Maybe that information's out there, not that I saw, but i that would be good to know because what if he did have a gray car, then that would tie this up even more. But it's possible that that gray car wasn't connected to Mary's death. But then you think about it in that short distance of her walking to her apartment to where her neighbor saw her. Obviously, she wasn't far away. It would make sense. I really wish the neighbor didn't look away, but it's not their fault. They didn't know.
0: Well, from what I heard is uh, Mary had actually turned the corner out of the view of the neighbor and so at that point the neighbor wasn't really going to go you know chase after this girl to figure out what was going on so in my mind it could have been somebody else in this gray car and then she was picked up by john around the corner or taken by john who knows
1: there's just so many details to this case and i think just this has to point to john But our condolences go out to all the victims and their families in this horrifying, horrifying case. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to the longest episode yet of Going West.
0: Yes, thank you so much, everyone, for sticking around for this whole episode. And next week, we'll have an all-new case for you guys to dive into.
1: If you guys want to try out Remrise or Deathwish Coffee, you can go and do that. Check the links below in the description. Head over to deathwishcoffee.com. Use promo code GOINGWEST for 10% off. Or head over to tinyurl.com slash REMRISE west to get you off free trial
0: yes go over and get remrise, and go get yourself some strong strong coffee and also if you guys want to join our patreon we're going to be putting out another bonus episode this week it'll be episode 10 of real crime so go check that out go to patreon.com slash going west podcast and get yourself some bonus episodes
1: and follow us on instagram and twitter instagram is at going west podcast and twitter is at going west pod